Welcome to Law and More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen and Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. This time, our guest is Bloomberg editor Douglas Wong, who reflects on his upbringing in Malaysia, schooling in the UK, and many years working in Hong Kong. A veteran of the city's media scene who has covered both financial, political, and legal issues, Douglas is also former president of the Foreign Correspondents Club. He talks with our senior partner, Colin Cohen. Stay tuned. Douglas, welcome to Laura Moore. It's a great pleasure to have you here. I know you're very busy. What has been occupying you lately? Good morning, Colin, and thank you. It's such a privilege to join this podcast, which I enjoy deeply. So what's been keeping me busy in the last couple of days is actually entirely personal matter in the sense that the change of policies have meant that I was trying to plan my first trip out of Hong Kong since the pandemic began. I'm hoping to go and see my mother in Malaysia next month. I managed to get flights, and there are only two flights a month to most destinations. I even managed to get a quarantine hotel for when I came back. And then I found out my mother's helper caught COVID yesterday morning, so I've had to put that all on hold to see how that situation develops. It's a frustrating time for everyone. But anyway, let's go a little bit back. You're very successful here. You're at Bloomberg, but we'll talk about Bloomberg a little bit later. You're Malaysian. A little bit about your growing up. What were your thoughts in Malaysia when you were there? I hope I'm a little bit more grown up than I was when I was uh, young in Malaysia. My childhood was a great childhood, but I went to primary school in Malaysia, but then I went to secondary school in England and then to university in England. I don't know whether I grew up at primary, secondary school or university or even in 18 years here, but it's been an enjoyable experience mostly. But your roots are Malaysian. I consider myself Malaysian. I think identity is a funny thing. My roots are certainly Malaysian. I mean, after living here for 18 years, I I feel in many ways as a Hong Konger. I spent a long time in the UK, so I'm very fond of Britain and very close friends in Britain. My wife is Singaporean. But you're correct. My roots are Malaysian. I have been back to vote at every election. I'm very sad at some of the developments. I don't think that Malaysia has achieved all it could have as a country. I I think I probably will retire to Malaysia, especially as it's certainly more cost-effective than Hong Kong. Right. So I'm interested about your schooling. You're in boarding school. Enjoy it. I went to a school called Marlborough in Wiltshire. Quite well-known school. (laughs) I think people have perceptions about boarding schools, some good, some bad. For my friends with children, my wife and I don't have any children. We have a very indulged cat. But for my friends with children, it doesn't matter where in the world they are. The education of their children is the most important thing to them. And it was the same for my parents. And I was very fortunate to be sent to a school where I think I got a good education. But having never gone to any other type of school, I can't compare it to anything else. I thought I had a good education and I made some good friends there. And I note that you went to university in Manchester. Yes. And you studied literature and anthropology. What on earth took you down that course? Well, they're fascinating subjects. I was, again, very lucky in the sense that while my father in particular would have been preferred me to be a doctor or a lawyer. My parents were indulgent. And uh, when I chose to do a degree in subjects that I found enjoyable, and I thought mine broadening, they didn't kind of press the thumb down too hard. You liked Manchester? I enjoyed Manchester a lot. It was quite a contrast to Marlborough. It was a great time to be there in the very early 90s. It was the dance capital of the world. Not that I actually dance much. And 
I do know this. You are an ardent Liverpool supporter, and I'm being a Chelsea supporter. We had a little, uh, not arguments, watching an FA Cup final. What on earth took you to support Liverpool when you were studying in Manchester? Sounds like heresy, in my view. The fact that I'm a Liverpool supporter tells you how old I am. I think there's a generation of Southeast Asians and probably Hong Kongers who support Manchester United. And then there's an earlier generation who support Liverpool, coincident with the, I guess, respective strengths of the teams. And when I was a child growing up in Malaysia, Liverpool were the team, just like Chelsea were for a while. And who knows who will be the, the team of the next few years. But it's great to have a club to support. So you are Liverpool from an early age. Correct. And I was Chelsea before even the Russian money came in. Anyway, so you decide to go into become a journalist and you went to work in the Straits Times. You became the Asian financial correspondent. What made you go down that route to become a journalist? So I actually started working for the newspaper, uh, the student newspaper at my university in Manchester called the Mancunian. And what I learned there was that the great thing about being a journalist was that you see the entire iceberg rather than just the tip, which most people who read the, the physical newspapers see. And I found it a fantastic community. Most of the people involved in journalism are public spirited and trying to serve the greater good. Having not done a practical degree like my parents would have wished, the only skill I had was some inclination towards expressing myself in words. So I guess there was no choice. Straits Times, enjoy it there, enjoy Singapore. Had the reputation right newspaper of being a little bit pro-government, I recollect. It was a very good few years there. And I have friends who, to this day, maintain that Hong Kong's press freedom is much stronger than Singapore. Sensitive subject, obviously. But for me, I learned a tremendous amount working there. I particularly recall my first scoop, which of course involved a lawyer. And it was when Nick Leeson crashed bearings back in the early 90s. I had just started. The good thing about long-running stories uh, for journalists is that at the beginning, everyone's got the scoop of who he is, where he is, digging up a photo of him. But the longer the story goes on, the opportunity you have to catch up. So when Leeson had fled Singapore, first to Sabah and then to Germany, and when I noticed that he had appointed a Singapore lawyer, and I noticed that that lawyer had previously worked for Singapore's commercial affairs department, I kind of thought, this is interesting. Why would he appoint a lawyer who has previously worked for the commercial affairs department? And I worked my sources, and I eventually broke the story that he was coming back of his own free will. Yes, and it's quite interesting, because I was involved in that case. You don't know that now. I did not. There you are. If you may recollect, I was acting for Lorraine Osman in the carrion cases and all the rest as mm. well. And then I was involved peripherally on the outside, and I did have the privilege of seeing him when he was in Germany on his way back to Singapore. My goodness me. So it's a very, very small world. But then you moved away from the Straits Times to my favorite newspaper. And to this day, it is my favorite newspaper. It's the Financial Times. I think it's a fantastic newspaper. I love reading The Weekend. It's great. You were the correspondent for Singapore and Malaysia. Correct. So I think one of the nice things about whether you're working for the Straits Times or the South China Morning Post or whoever, Bangkok Post in Thailand, is that 
the journalism community is a very friendly one. It's competitive, but it's cooperative. And uh, as a journalist working for the Straits Times in Singapore, and then later in Malaysia for them as well, you get to know the other foreign correspondents, including folks from the Financial Times, people like Reuters, the New York Times, and you are a community. And uh, you respect each other's work when it's good and you make fun of it when it could be better. I, I knew the then correspondent and when that correspondent was leaving, she recommended me and I got the job. And it was certainly a very different type of newspaper to the Singapore Straits Times. <laughs> I mean, just on the very basic level, they were headquartered in London. I really didn't have anyone I was working with day to day. But I guess what was really nice was that you knew that you had as you say, this history of knowledge and perspective with a very light touch. I think that that was what I liked most about working. I, there was once an editorial writer called me up because they wanted to write an editorial about Malaysia. And it was a discussion like this. And then they came up with the most incredible editorial. And I was like, well, I had some input into that, but all I was doing was having a chat. Yeah. And it's about that time you were commissioned to write a book HSBC, it's Malaysian story. I find that a little intriguing. Tell us a little bit more about that. That was a wonderful project. And I think one of the great things about being a journalist clearly is that you get to learn a lot from people who really know their stuff. Working on this book took that to another level. They commissioned me to write the book. It was for their 120th anniversary in Malaysia, I believe. And it meant that I met many of their former chief executives for Malaysia. I even met Willie Purvis and I visited almost every branch in the country. I met many of their key clients and they were talking to me in the way they would never do as a journalist. So it was a wonderful experience to be able to tell a story, of course, in this case, for the bank, but it was truly a Malaysian story. And it, it really helped as someone who had spent a lot of his time outside Malaysia for me to appreciate that the country more as well. Yeah, because HSBC, one of its main interests were financing the difficulties in people raising monies in Malaysia, the banking system. So they were really very, very keen on opening up in, in the Asia Pacific area. Malaysia was one of their you know, main areas. Malaysia and Singapore, they were basically one market. They were the second most important market globally for HSBC after Hong Kong for a very, very long time. There were so many fascinating other stories in the longer history. Just one I will mention was that after the Second World War, HSBC had been there since 1884, right? After the Second World War, HSBC came back and the British came back and they set up what they called the British Military Administration. The victors write the history, so you'd never really read anything bad about what happened there. But what happened was that clearly after a war, there is terrible situation. There's a lot of desperation. There's a struggle for resources. Uh, there was a lot of corruption. And if you are the military administration and you're controlling all of the resources, it was known but to everyone as the black market administration, which again, is, is something that I'd never come across before, but it, it was one of the many, many lovely pieces of information that I learned from working on the book. It's about that time. You then now come to Hong Kong you switched to Bloomberg and you've been here for 18 years and you're still going strong with Bloomberg. What brought you to Hong Kong? What made you come to Hong Kong and work for Bloomberg? So simply, Bloomberg approached me and asked me whether I wanted to join them in Hong Kong. They needed a reporter to cover investment banking. My name came across them and they thought it would be good. And uh, by that time, I felt that I had 
if you like, learned a lot about Southeast Asia. And I was ready to learn a little bit about Northeast Asia, in particular China. So it was a great opportunity, and I was very happy to come. Funnily enough, it was very hard in the first year because Bloomberg is a very different pace from uh, the Financial Times. It's real-time news. That's why I wanted to do it. I was actually asked in my interview, you work for Financial Times, why would you want to join Bloomberg? And I said, honestly, it wasn't a suck-up or anything. That This was 2004. Yeah. Real-time news is the future. If you don't have experience of it, you, you, you're really not going to be a journalist. You came as the Asia legal editor, because I'm quite interested about the legal matters, because you know, it's my profession. What was your brief at that time? And any major stories you recollect at those early stages when you were there? What, one reason why I've stayed with Bloomberg all this time, I've done five different jobs for them in that time here. After I was asked to set up the coverage of government and politics, which I did. And then after that, I set up the coverage of legal and regulatory news here. Bloomberg started just over 40 years ago as a bond market data provider. And it's grown as a company phenomenally into full service business information provider. So in the news side, it has gradually developed and grown in the time that I've worked there to cover more and more areas. And so law was part of that. After having spent a lot of time with bankers and spent a lot of time with politicians, I have to say lawyers were my favorite types of people to spend time with. Why? <laughs> Tell me more, please. Well, clearly lawyers are very erudite and are good at expressing themselves. Everyone will talk to a journalist because there's a reason to talk. But I, I found that many lawyers that I interacted with actually enjoyed ideas and, and concepts as much as promoting themselves, which unfortunately some bankers and politicians, in my experience, seem to be more interested in promoting themselves than rather just intellectual discussion. Yeah, because I do remember talking to you a little bit of a couple of cases I was involved in. <laughs> well, of course, the wonderful thing about that role was that I got to cover some incredible cases. Two in particular, I remember where I got to know you. Two of the biggest trials in Hong Kong, the Nancy Kissel first and second <laughs> appeals. And of course, the uh, Sun Hung Kai corruption case. Yeah. So yes, that was when I met you and you proved my point entirely that lawyers are extremely uh, civil and intelligent and wonderful people to interact with. You obviously are incredibly discreet in terms of representing your clients, but you understand that there are times when the court of public opinion and, and talking to journalists uh, has value. And it was very good to meet you then. It's, it's always amazing with the Nancy Kissel case. And for our listeners, that's a case regarding a, a, a milkshake murderer. How that, for a murder case, to be part of the business environment for Bloomberg to be interested in a case like that, I found it not intriguing because I could understand why, but it, it, it was there in, in the headlines for all those years and still is. I think the true crime stories, you see it on streaming services now, right? There, there seems to be an endless appetite for them. And for a Bloomberg audience and our readership, our subscribers, vastly in the financial services industry, this was a head of debt of finance at Merrill Lynch, who had formerly worked for Goldman Sachs, who was murdered by his wife. Everyone wanted to know about this story. Exactly. Now, Bloomberg has become a multi-platform news outlet, and it does a variety of operations. Indeed, I had the privilege of being shown up when I got to know you, when I had to go to New York. You introduced me to everybody. You showed me around, and I came out of it absolutely amazed at the diversity, the interest, but the total way in which news was being developed and the worldwide issues and how this impacted upon Hong Kong. 
I was very impressed. I'm very happy as to what Bloomberg are doing. You've grown considerably in size and you've contributed to Hong Kong greatly. The chief executive in her speech to Bloomberg was saying, oh, it was an honor for her to be even invited. And she gave a great outline as to what you had done. Tell us more. I guess very quickly, as I say, Bloomberg as a company started out with an idea by the founder, Mike Bloomberg, that there was more efficient ways to provide markets with, in particular, bond market data. And it really has grown on from there, first with the news net, then uh, with a number of different other products, such as financial research, where I work now. But even in terms of the traditional products like providing financial market data, many of these things have become more and more complex with technology. So in many ways, Bloomberg is as much an engineering and an IT company now. We're competing as a company with Google to hire the best engineers. We're not as well known, clearly, as uh, big technology companies and maybe even as some media companies. But it's been a fantastic, as you say, company to work for, which is uh, very, very committed to its customers. Yeah. And it is interesting. In most lifts you go to in Hong Kong, you, the Bloomberg TV, it, it's there. And it reports well. Everybody's up to date. Everybody wants to know what's happening in the court cases. I'm always very impressed with that. It's an interesting platform. Well, news platforms change all the time. So I left news in 20. 16, I think, for my current role. But I'm still in the same office and my friends all still in news. And I see how much it is developed. Short videos on social media are very important now for global audiences. Automated collection of news and product is very important. In a way, just six years out of news, and I feel like I should be using a physical spike to put pieces of paper on because it's developed so much. So it's transformed the delivery. We still appreciate stories in reading them or seeing them on the screen, but it could be a very small screen that you're reading or seeing it on. Yes, yes. Now, I want to move a little bit to a new topic, which is dear to your heart. It's the Foreign Correspondents Club, the SCC. We've spoken about that. You were the former president and treasurer. You now are sitting on various committees. Tell us a little bit how you got involved with the FCC. I moved here from Singapore, and I think almost the first thing I did was to join the FCC. As I mentioned earlier, I think one of the great things about being a journalist and a foreign correspondent is that it's fantastic community. So the fact that we had a wonderful building in Central, five minutes walk from my office, made it a real no-brainer to join the club as soon as I came along. And as I stayed in Hong Kong longer, I guess I got pulled in a little bit more by my friends and colleagues there. The role of the FCC, looking after the interests of the free press. Interestingly, I'm now no longer a correspondent member of the club because in my current role as an, I'm now working for Bloomberg and Intelligence, which is our financial research unit. I'm not considered a journalist. So I'm now an associate member of the club. But I think that many of our associate members, lawyers, the bankers, they're not journalists. They support the FCC in its role of being a center and a, and a beacon for the journalistic community. And of course, that includes free press. Yeah, and very recently, candidates who declared themselves for the chief executive post, they gave him the platform to go and say his piece. It's always been like that. It's fantastic. And I've hosted chief executives at the club to speak. I remember one nice lunch event where we had a pro-Beijing and as we then had a pan-democrat <laughs> lawmaker on the same platform, and it was a very pleasant discussion. And in your new role, 
in Bloomberg and business intelligence. Can you give our listeners a little bit heads up as the type of work you're doing at the moment? Sure. The analysts that we have, financial analysts, many of whom have come to us from banks or other financial institutions, they cover over 2,000 listed companies in uh, 135 industries and 21 markets. We've got about 400 analysts globally and over 80 in Asia, the majority of them in Hong Kong. And besides covering listed companies, how is this company going to do? A lot of people have been very interested in recent months in Chinese property developers and what their prospects are. And for me, Having previously been a financial journalist, but now working with financial analysts, it's been an education because clearly there are different ways in which different people look at things, whether you're a lawyer or a journalist or a, a certified financial analyst who understands financial ratios in a way I never will, having only studied literature and anthropology. Hong Kong has been going through some interesting times. We've had the troubles. We've now got the issues vis-a-vis -vis COVID, the figures show that people are leaving. Uh, I read today that Bloomberg, the article is Hong Kong's completely avoidable COVID catastrophe. A very interesting article published by Bloomberg, basically saying huge mistakes have been made. How has all this impacted upon you from your own personal point of view in, in respect of where we are right now today? You said at the very beginning, you want to go and see your mother. Everyone's having these issues. Tell us a little bit more as to how, how you're feeling at the moment. The story you just mentioned is fantastic. And uh, we've been doing some fantastic work on that subject. And if I may say so, I think you've been writing some fantastic pieces in your own, uh, That's very kind <laughs> in your you. own way on this subject as well. It, it's been a terribly difficult time for Hong Kong and for all of our friends here. And you can't help but feel it with them. And that almost amplifies your own feelings. When you have pro-establishment lawmakers saying that the leader of the government should be no confidence and the number of prominent people who have expressed unhappiness, deep unhappiness with the government's handling of the pandemic is quite astounding. Actually, in all my time in Hong Kong, I've not experienced this level of sadness. And in your article, the picture headline is pictures of people outside the hospitals, elderly people when all of this could have been avoidable. It's tragic, actually. It is entirely tragic on a personal level, and one, we have to hope that things will get better. The, the really challenging thing, unfortunately, is that for many of uh, our friends here, we, we know in, in Hong Kong, the last couple of years have been such that they almost feel that they shouldn't raise their hopes because they've had them dashed so many times in the course of the pandemic. It's a deeply difficult time for Hong Kong. I think at the same time, of course, we have this terrible horrible situation as well in Ukraine. And while there's no particular relation, I think for any of us who are watching images of the suffering there, it affects us as well. The pandemic was an ex existential threat for the world and, and clearly for Hong Kong. It seems that much of the rest of the world is moving past it. Hopefully we can too. Obviously, you're very busy, your work, your commitments. How do you relax? I see you hiking around a little bit on Facebook with your lovely wife. I, I, I do see you do that occasionally. One of the consolations of the pandemic and, and not traveling has been that Hong Kong is what a beautiful place we live in. And when you've been here a little while, I guess you kind of get used to it and you're hopping off for weekends. And there were so many fantastic hikes in parts of Hong Kong that I hadn't been to. Unfortunately, the pandemic has gone on so long now that I think there's only two more hikes for me to do before I finish the list. And finally, I always ask all my guests this. You're like me. You've been here a very, very long time. What are your thoughts for the future? 
you did say at the beginning, do you tend to stay here? You talked about retiring in Malaysia, but your thoughts for your future. One of the reasons that I've stayed here so long, and maybe a lot of people have, have stayed here so long, is that it's, it's such an easy place to live, and it's such a compact place to live. And one of the great things about the compactness of Hong Kong is I think that you can still be very active and involved in social community issues, keeping yourself interested in things. Without the challenges, London, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, New York, these are big cities where it's not easy to get around. <laughs> Hong Kong is so easy. If I owned my apartment, I would love to retire here. Sadly, I can't afford to. And unfortunately, that's not Hong Kong's problem. Hong Kong's problem is housing. It's people, not people like me. Douglas, thank you so much for joining us on Law & More. Thank you so much, Colin. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose, Cohen & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on our next episode.